Hello, everyone. Welcome to SpotCast number 11. My name is Ron Small. You can find us at swayproductions.com and on iTunes. I just finished up an interview with the great booming-voiced Shane Hurlbut, the cinematographer on such films as Terminator Salvation, Swing Vote, Into the Blue, The Rat Pack, Drumline, The Skulls, and most recently, Act of Valor, which Shane shot almost completely on the 5D Mark II. Shane is a really open, generous guy, as you'll, you'll know if you follow his blog at hurlbutvisuals.com. He's one of those guys who's continually teaching and informing, mentoring about how he does what he does, and he does some pretty extraordinary stuff. I recommend you check out some of the links uh, in the show notes before the interview. You can find uh, those on the Spotcast page on swayproductions.com. Lots of interesting stories and insight from Shane Hurlbut, and here he goes. Tell me a bit about how you went from driving a, uh, a grip truck on the horror film uh, Phantasm II to becoming a cinematographer within the course of about seven years. Well, you know, it, it all happened on uh, Phantasm II, actually. Um, I was a grip truck driver. I was actually working at Key Light for $5 an hour. I had come out to California, started in a rental house in Boston. So when I came out to California, I had worked there and I was able to, you know, work within the movie business and commercial business in Boston by going that route. So I thought, all right, let's go about it the same way. So I got a job at Key Light and I was all excited that, you know, I just landed in California and beautiful warm weather and I thought I could be wearing t-shirts and clam digger shorts back at the time you know in the late 80s and sure enough they're like okay if you take this job I need steel-toed boots jeans and a long sleeve shirt <laughs> so uh you know it was like wah 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 yeah uh but uh you know I worked there for about three months and this producer approached me and asked me you know if I could drive the grip an electric truck for this, you know, low budget horror film called Phantasm Two, and I said, "Yeah, I'd love to." And they're like, "Well, it means you're going to have to, uh, you know, leave Keylight because the deal with Keylight went south. They wanted too much money or something like that, so they went over to Lee America." And I said, "Sure." So I went and drove for them, and you know, it was uh, sixteen, eighteen hours a day for. Uh, I think it was $300 a week, six day weeks. I think I averaged it out. I think I was making 27 cents an hour, uh, over the whole course of the film. Yeah. And, um, I was Terry Wimmer was the key grip and he went on the radio and he's like, Hey Shane, I need a 18 by 24 flag ASAP. So I'm like, you know, on the truck and I run it down into the set and we were shooting in this Chatsworth uh, industrial park that they turned into kind of a, a studio space and uh, they had built this crematorium set and you kind of walk down the stairs and it was like three big ovens where they basically burn bodies. And, uh, you know, I carried the flag down in and as my way down... Uh, the best boy electric who had gone to USC cinematography school and was working as a best boy electric on the, the job, he goes, he stops me, you know, mid, you know, running down the steps. And he's like, would you be scared when you're in the movie theater, when you watch this film? And I go, Brian, what are you talking about, man? I, I got to get this flag down there. They're yelling for it. And he goes, look, Every nook and cranny is lit, and it was like, bam, right at that point, everything I looked at was light. And uh, from that moment, I, I literally, that was 1988, and by 1991, I shot my first music video. And it was, you know, it was just really being hyper-focused on everything that was light you know the way the sun dappled through the trees the way it went into the room the way fluorescence looked in a room the way night 
car, you know, everything. I just tried to take it in from a visual sense of, and just putting it into my memory banks. So when I got into a situation in a film or a commercial or a music video, I would say, this is the way I want to light it. So I'm curious about this. You were a, a key grip on the film Street Asylum. Uh, yeah. Which was directed by Gregory Dark, who, uh, who at the time had done everything from porn to music videos. And, uh, and the film stars uh, Wings Hauser, a really wonderful B-movie actor, as, as well as G. Gordon Liddy playing a, a right-wing politician. Uh, yeah. What the hell was it like to be on that set? Uh, it was it was crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, because G. Gordon Liddy was so, uh, I mean, all the stuff that had gone from, uh, you know, for, with, through Watergate and the right. whole Nixon thing and him just saying that, you know, I remember the running joke on the, on the set was, uh, you know, not to, uh, that, you know, a cigarette burn and all that stuff that he literally just would take a cigarette and push it right into his skin and wouldn't even flinch. <laughs> and so we had this scene where Abalonia, uh, which was Prince's girl at the time, uh -huh. uh, there's a dominatrix scene where she is the dominatrix and G. Gordon Liddy is kind of laying over the edge of a desk and she is beating him with this leather, uh, you know, bullwhip. Right. Okay. And we put this pad on his back. You know, the stunt guy put this pad to, to protect his back. Uh -huh. Well, she was whipping the crap out of him. And uh, as I was shooting, I'm starting to see blood start to seep out the side of his shirt. And I'm like, what is going on here? And, you know, she keeps on whipping him and we're running a couple cameras and then all of a sudden it's cut and, you know, all right, uh, let's, you know, go to a different setup. And, you know, he was the bullwhip was going wrapping around the pad and literally, you know, whipping and tearing at his flesh uh, on the left side of the pad. Wow. And he wasn't even flinching. It was like so, <laughs> so surreal. I was like, wow, this guy is hardcore. Uh -huh. uh, but, you know, that film originally was called Squad. Mm-hmm. And it stood, it stood for Scum Quelling Urban Assault Division, which I just love that term. <laughs> yes. So when you, were, uh, when you were just starting out, you were, you were gaffing on a commercial for Mattel, and you were super green at the time, and you accidentally overexposed a, a really integral shot. Uh, can you tell me a bit about that experience and the effect it had on you? Yeah, so Brian Coyne and I struck up a relationship out of Phantasm 2, and he went from, you know, um, best boy electric to director of photography with uh, a buddy, David Street, who had gone to USC with him. And our first job was a 7-Up job, and he goes, hey, do you want to be my gaffer? And I'm like, sure, you know. So I didn't know how to read a light meter or really know what the heck I was doing, but, you know, Brian believed in me and believed in my work ethic, and we kind of became a team where he started DPing a lot, and I would travel all over America with him shooting all these commercials. And uh, we got this, it might have been my second commercial with him. I think we did the 7-Up one, we did some like Kiss FM spot, and then we did the Mattel. And... Uh, you know, we had been day exterior shooting out in a park with these little girls playing in sand with the swing sets in the background with the little Barbie with the swing set. Uh, and then we went inside and uh, so my meter was still at 50 ASA. And uh, so we start lighting the, the scene uh, on the, which was at Triangle Stage which is, was the oldest stage in, in Hollywood. It was the original, like, Max Senate stage, the stage that was built, like, after the Hollywood move from Ithaca, New York, out to, uh, out to Hollywood. And it's basically at the corner of where Sunset and Fountain 
create this triangle and they literally built this stage and it had uh you know places for your horses uh underground and uh so it was a very funky funky space but we were we were in there shooting this uh shooting this Mattel thing and it was like these performers on stage and it was glamorous Barbie and she was like a pop star. So we shot real girls live action and then we cut into the close-ups of the Barbies in, you know, pop star and twinkle curtains and everything. And so I had, you know, uh, follow spots and everything and a stage uh, drop and, and, you know, I'm reading the light and telling him it's a, you know, a two eight and, and everything. And we get it all that way. And then I look at my meter when I'm reading him the light and he goes, you got it set on 50. We're at 500. And I was like, Oh, you know, and, uh, he goes, we just overexposed everything like two and a half stops. And I go, Oh no, you know, we're all kind of the panic and should we tell the agency? And sure enough, you know, Brian's like, we have to tell him. So we told him and we had to go back and reshoot all that stuff and it caused overtime and, and I thought I would never work again. And, uh, you know, sure enough, you know, all the footage that they loved was the two and a half stops overexposed stuff. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so when you who who had to tell the agency was it uh, the the um, the director or, or yeah who? no the director of photography went up to the director and then we we all kind of went as this team with my you know my tail between my legs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. We well, you know, so it's interesting. Oh, go ahead, Shane. You have to fail to succeed. Absolutely. What's interesting about that um, is you, you mentioned that you know they they really like like the overexposed stuff. Um, your your first two films as a DP with um, with Rob Cohen, uh, the Skulls, and actually especially I think Rat Pack uh, has a lot of uh, kind of overexposed, really beautiful you know overexposed kind of shots. Mm -hmm. uh, and and the lighting choices in those films are are very stylized. Can can you discuss a bit how those were lit and, and why those decisions were made? Yeah, I mean, th my original concept of talking with uh, Rob Cohen was that this was the Rat Pack. These guys, their life was on stage. So out of that, you know, that's what he said to me. And I said, well, what if we light it like Harrell, where everywhere these people go, whether they're on stage or at home watching TV or out with some hot chick, Whatever it is, they have the perfect backlight, the perfect key light, the perfect fill light. Uh, and, it, you know, he was like, I love that idea. That sounds really cool. And I go, let's do Harrell style where I overexpose their faces like two stops. So and then we'll use a Fagal French hosiery net uh, on the rear element of the Panavision Primo Primes. So you get that amazing glow off their skin and uh, they just look like movie stars wherever they go. And then when Frank loses it and, and loses it all, we can take that away. We can make him not a movie star. His skin isn't so porcelain. It's not so glowy. It's not so, and that was kind of our whole, uh, you know, visual landscape of the film. Did doing that, uh, did that mean a lot of setup time uh, for, for to, to do those kind of shots? No, not at all. I mean, that was a 31-day schedule. Right. It so, was an HBO film, right? Yeah, HBO. You know, uh, the first two days of dailies, HBO freaked. They just could not believe how beautiful and how cool this movie was looking. Right. And it was really, you know, a testament to Rob Cohen where he just really had balls of steel, uh, you know, putting me in there because against all odds, you know, I knocked it out. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I remember at the time um, HBO had done a lot of, of biopics and they had done the one for like uh, Josephine Baker and, and they were doing a lot of kind of very standard looking uh, biopics. And, and, and that that one really stood out because of its look, you know, the... Um, the style of it really it, it made it look not like a TV movie. It looked like it looked a lot more cinematic. Exactly. I mean, that was kind of the approach that we just really wanted to uh, 
you know, knock it out so it could be a feature film. It wasn't a movie of the week. Mm-hmm. So tell me about how you met uh, Kevin Kerslake and, and some of the uh, collaborations that came about from that. Kevin Kerslake, I'm trying to think how I originally met him. Um, you know, it was a phone call that he, I guess he had a friend of his that had worked with me as a gaffer and you know Kevin was a kind of a director cameraman but he didn't know how to light uh, a lot Mm -hmm. and he wanted somebody to be his lighting designer so that's how I originally started he called me up and and we would kind of he would send me the song and I would uh, start to think about visually how the light should look and and what kind of wacky ass rigs we could create or you know whatever it was you know whatever sparked my uh creative nerve uh when i listened to the song that's what i would you know spit out of my mouth and say you know i think this could be cool if we did this and did that and did this and he would you know take those ideas and kind of uh you know know what his ideas were he'd send me his treatment along with the song and a lot of times I went off of his treatment and said well what about this way and sometimes I would incorporate the ideas within his treatment but that was a a match made in heaven for me because he was uh, the experimenter he was the guy that always thought out of the box he was the person that pushed me to the absolute limit in regards to lighting and exposures and just shooting with no matter with everything you know whether it was 16 millimeter 35 millimeter or you know shooting super 8 and then processing it in my own bathtub uh, is what you know that experience with Kevin Kerslake was he was he was the ying to the kind of Herb Ritz yang Right, so around the time you were working on uh, as, as a lighting director on a lot of um, Herb Ritz's uh, photography work, how was that in terms of uh, a difference to the stuff you were doing with Kevin? Well, it was, you know, Kevin's was so experimental, and Herb's was kind of experimental in more of a compositional way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I, with Kevin, you had a lot of, you know, compositional experimentation as well but more of Herb Ritz's stuff was either natural light or you know us in the studio or you know us traveling around the world and me lighting for him and and different applications but you know it was it was style photography or you know you know beautiful composition and you know what I learned from her more than anything is how to light a face and looking at a face and which side is best to be lit from uh, and kind of, you know, putting that into your memory bank to know that if you're going to stage a scene or block a scene to try and, you know, the end result is being on the right side of the face. Uh, just the, the power of the drop shadow underneath their chin to separate the chin and and uh, the, re- and the neck. Uh, just really... You know, things that that uh, forged me ahead as a cinematographer on just how to like guys and 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 women. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the shooting uh, on eight millimeter uh, thing that you mentioned was that for the uh, the Smashing Pumpkins uh, Cherub Rock uh, video? Yeah. Yeah. What went into the decision to shoot that on eight millimeter? Well, we we knew that uh, we were in that environment, which was actually the the redwood forest in Mount Tamalpais, uh, just outside of San Francisco. And the Smashing Pumpkins were on tour or up there. And, and I was actually doing a Herb Ritz, uh, Calvin Klein commercial during the day and then hopping on a Southwest plane and working all night, uh, on the Smashing Pumpkins. And I did that for three nights and three days in a row. Uh, so, you know, it's, there's a, there's a lot of entitlement out there, uh, with, you know, young, uh, cinematographers or videographers that, you know, are getting their, getting their, you know, moving themselves up and, and you got to work 
you got to, you know, you got to get there and you really have to uh, understand light, understand cameras, do whatever you can. And it, 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 it should not come easy. If it does, you are absolutely going the wrong direction. And it, it just really, you know, cements you as not only a human being, but as a person that can handle, uh, you know, the punt, as I call it. Uh, because a lot of times, all your plans that have been made, uh, sometimes they go awry. And having the ability to punt, and that punt being better than the original plan, is what makes you really good as a cinematographer. How did you uh, initially get to do the Rad Pack? I was shooting a music video for the, for the film Daylight. And uh, it was Randy St. Nicholas was the director, and mm -hmm. Rob Cohen was the director of Daylight. Right. And, you know, he's very hands-on with everything. Anything that's associated with his film, he's very much a part of. So uh, when, when I was shooting those uh, with that music video, he brought his production team down. And they wanted to just make sure that Donna Summer and Bruce Roberts were being nicely taken care of and everything was good. And uh, they came back and they said, uh, wow, you got to check this director of photography out. I've never seen anyone that commands a set like this guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, a week later, I had a, uh, a call from Rob Cohen's office and he wanted me to come in and interview with him to shoot a pilot called Lost in Paradise. Mm -hmm. And uh, something like that. I can't remember what the heck the name was. Paradise Lost or... Right, yeah. Something like that. Sure. Uh, and so I came in and interviewed and he... He told me he wanted me to have the job, and then I had to jump through 900 hoops with uh, NBC because, you know, I wasn't established, and I wasn't narrative, and I was a music video shooter, and how did I know how to tell a story, and all that stuff. Right. So out of that, I, uh, I was able to, you know, convince them that I knew what I was doing, and then uh, once I had that underneath my belt... Now it was trying to tackle HBO, and they had all the same concerns. I had only shot one narrative piece, and I remember going into that interview at the HBO Tower in uh, Century City and having six people interview me about what made me different and why I wanted to shoot this film. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a great learning experience for me, and I kind of went out there went in there with an attitude of, if I get it, that's great. If I don't get it, that's great. And it seems like Rob Cohen um, was very much willing to uh, kind of do experiment with you in terms of, of a lighting palette, like uh, for The Skulls, which is, is a really beautiful kind of golden-toned film. How did the, uh, the, the decision to, to shoot in that kind of style come about for that film? Uh, well, he wanted to kind of take the same aesthetics that we did on the Rat Pack and uh, use it at this, uh, you know, coveted University of Yale and the Skull and Bones. So we use kind of the same uh, idea of the net behind the lens and, uh, you know, making this kind of a just a, a amazingly polished and smooth uh, environment of Yale and, and just the, the light and the buildings and the architecture and, and the history and all that stuff. It had a, a really uh, strong visual language in that sense. So, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of using the same elements from Rat Pack and put it into uh, this uh, kind of suspense thriller. I get the sense that directors really enjoy working with you and that you had several frequent collaborations uh, like those with uh, John Stockwell, uh, McGee, Kevin Kerslake, and so on. Uh, can you talk a bit about the director-DP relationship? Yeah, I mean, the, the director-DP relationship is, is very much, you know, when I'm asked to do a movie or I go in for an interview, 
that interview process is, is done uh, a lot of different ways. The way I do it is I read the, the script and I formulate a plan and a look and a feel of the film. And I go in there and sell that to them. Uh, because for me, I can tell right off the bat if they're collaborators or they're just, you know, I do what they tell me. And usually I'll get the job and I know that I'm going, it's going to be a collaborative experience. And those are the kind of movies that I really uh, respond to. And, uh, and I kind of, let's say, uh, test the waters in the interview to see if they're game for that. And, uh, you know, most of the time, uh, it's, it's been a great experience when I go in there having a point of view and not just sitting back and saying, well, when the director asks you how you would see it, you kind of are very general and, and vague with your brush strokes. I'm completely on point, and I tell you what each shot and what each frame and what each scene is going to look and feel like. When you get hired for a job, are you always getting hired by the director? Yes. Yeah, yeah. The interview with the director, and once that interview goes down and I get the job, then the collaboration is, is uh, anywhere from like Terminator Salvation was 24 weeks of prep before the movie was even, you know, shot. Uh, that is extreme. Uh, I think I've had the most I've had on a movie is eight or nine weeks. So, you know, you go in there and, and, uh, whether it's your storyboards, whether it's your shot list, kind of designing the whole film and kind of talking it through and saying, you know, what are the characters going through? How can I assist that with lighting? How can the camera help tell the story? But you know, it's really sitting with the director and we are a total, you know, we're the, 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 uh, general and the sergeant, let's say. And, uh, you know, we are toe to toe in tune, uh, like dead fall, which is the film I did in Montreal with, uh, Stefan Rizovitsky, uh, which is at the Tribeca film festival on, uh, April 22nd. That stars uh, Eric Bana, Olivia Wilde, Chris Christopherson, and Sissy Spacek. The director was Austrian. I was American. Right. He would start a sentence, and I could finish it. That's how in tune we were on the film. And not once did I ever misstep in regards to if somebody asked me a question that was directed as a director cinematography kind of question, I knew I could answer it even without even involving him. And that's how uh, in sync we were. And it was one of the most amazing collaborations I've ever had on any film that I've ever done. How did that relationship build? Was that uh, kind of from the first initial meeting, you guys kind of felt in sync with each other? Or was it a, over time you kind of developed a, um, a shorthand? I think it was over about a week of time when I finally landed in, in Montreal. And, you know, I got the job over a Skype call. And, uh, you know, once I landed and we, I started to see his storyboards, and the storyboards were the same kind of, uh, aesthetics that I had and he really started to see that I was completely in sync with where his headspace was and you know that it just from there on we were completely like you know your fingers being crossed we were linked. Can you talk a bit about the uh, the kind of pressures and, and challenges you face regularly as a cinematographer? Well I mean the, the challenges you face are you're always dealing with budget. Uh, you know, you, you have a box and you have to stay within it. Uh, and you, you constantly, it's, it's a balancing act of trying to put as much on the screen as possible. Uh, obviously lighting, uh, you know, there's lighting budget as well and, and trying to keep in that box, and then there's the schedule and there's the, you know, trying to, it's, a, it's amazing, uh, like Rubik's cube 
a good uh, putting a schedule together as a, a Rubik's cube of being able to you know, try and and get those elements in the schedule to work for your lighting, uh, right place, right time of day. Uh, you know, Deadfall is another good example of that where I uh, there's a se- several scenes in the movie that take place at dusk and at dawn. And I wanted to shoot that practically. Well, we're on a 31-day schedule on a 13, 14 million dollar movie. You know, you, you, we can't do the Terrence Malick, you know, shoot for four hours and go home scenario. We have to shoot all day, but how can I see, how can I work with the assistant director to shoot the dawn and dusk scenes, or let's say our first dawn scene at dusk and at dawn for five days. So I get 10 40-minute windows to be able to shoot a six-page scene. And, you know, working with that that uh, assistant director, we were able to do that. We were able to mold it and shape it and, and give me that ability. And, and we only got it to three days. So those three days, so I had to bring in more cameras. So some of the camera setups were eight, nine cameras, all hidden with snow blankets and under cars and hidden in, hidden behind cars, hidden in banks of snow, up on uh, scaffolding. Everything was done so we could take the whole scene in as a play and the perfect light. And uh, that was kind of, you know, the, the mentality of like, you know, those are the very big challenges as a cinematographer. You have to, you have to work very closely with production to try and get is the best deal and the best lighting deal, the best camera deal. So you can put as much on the screen as well as working with the assistant director to kind of help that process to make sure you're at the right place at the right time. So you don't have to do a lot of lighting in there. Or if you do, it's very minimal because of the right place and the right time uh, for day exteriors. Obviously, interiors and night exteriors and all that stuff is a, is a whole other you know animal. But uh, right place, right time is such an important piece of the puzzle. And, uh, you know, trying to organize yourself as a cinematographer and working with all the specific teams, you know, working with production design to if you need to embed lights in a set that that is done way in advance because they're already building the sets and they're already constructing them. And, and if you need, you know, areas to put fluorescence that scrape the walls or you need to embed lights in the set to help light the scene, you know, these are things that ideas that you have to have months in advance it's not something where you can show up on the day and say okay i want to light there you know it's going to take a long way too much time and and uh you know the it's not going to be built into the set so a lot of this is really you know there's a lot of different things that uh challenges the cinematographer that you really on a on a hourly basis that you have to conquer right and what were you shooting on for deadfall film Film, got it. So yeah, I, shot, I shot film, and I shot probably fifteen to twenty percent uh, Canon five D. Okay, so so t- let's talk about Active Valor a bit, which you shot com- pretty much completely on the on the five D Mark II. How did uh, did that project come about initially? The way that came about was uh, I had just done a, a series of webisodes for Active Valor. Uh, or sorry, a series of, uh, I had just done a series of webisodes for Terminator Salvation. It was kind of this alternative marketing campaign for uh, for Terminator, which were like these two-minute cliffhangers that led up each week to the release of the film to kind of rally the fanboys, get them all fired up. And Mick G asked me to be the director on it. So we put these things together, and it was all based around a helmet cam. And uh, the 5D had just come out, and I thought, oh, my God, if I mount this thing to a helmet and then these guys start carrying it around and I got T-600 blowing up walls and, and them hitting the deck and spitting blood out and all this, this is going to be immersive. This is going to be amazing. So we, I, we shot the thing, 
and the Bandito brothers saw the quality that I was able to get out of this camera, and they were just blown away. And they were like, what do you think about doing, uh, you know, this, this Navy SEAL movie that uh, we got? And I go, well, I'm not really into doing another action picture. I've just already done that, you know. And they're like, well, what if, what if we reinvent the action genre? And I was like, okay, I'm on board for that shit. And... Uh, <laughs> And it was, you know, talking them through, talking about how we were going to do live fire, how we were going to, you know, be immersed. And I go, well, immersed. I said, let's shoot this thing on the Canon 5D. You know, we can mount this thing to their helmet and it, we can go in the side, the, the eyes of the Navy SEAL. Nobody's done a movie like that. And it's right. like Call of Duty. So all the gamers are getting, you know, because it's real live action and it's not a video game and people are getting shot and, you know, plan A, B, C, D, and E are all scrapped and they got to go a different way and water, water, booze into the, you know, all this kind of, uh, you know, energy was, was uh, happening. And once I started to see the power of this capture device, I was like, oh, this is going to be, it's going to be unlike uh, any movie-going experience you've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. So what were the kind of challenges working with the 5D? Uh, because I, I think when you started the film, it had it was, what, like a year after it had been released? It was still, still it, maybe it just got the 24P upgrade um, when you had started. What, what, was the, what were the kind of workarounds that you had to, to figure out for this? So Active Valor started in March of 2009. The camera was lease, released November 3rd, 2008. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we were still on 30 frames and we were still on auto. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so okay. were you using a tw uh, Twixter? What, what, what was the, uh, what, what were all the workarounds that you had to Yeah, we were that? using Twixter and, you know, some other 3 2 pull down uh, things to get 24 frames. I was using Nikon lenses to begin with so I could trick the camera into manual right. and then uh, eventually Canon got me a manual beta uh, that I could input into my six or eight cameras that I had. And that's when, you know, we, we felt that we could, you know, start to make a movie on the thing when we could actually control it and, uh, and work with it that way. And then when I put the Panavision Primo Primes on it, it took that camera from a Yugo to a Porsche. So one of the interesting things about the film is, uh, is that it stars real-life uh, active-duty Navy SEALs uh, who often were deployed during the course of the shooting to, uh, to go on actual missions. How did that affect the scheduling of the film? Yeah, uh, it was like shooting like 35 commercials. You know, you would, you would prep for a week, mm -hmm. then you'd uh, travel, you'd scout for a week, and then you'd shoot for a week, and then you'd come home and be down for three weeks or four weeks. And then you'd fire back up and you'd shoot, you'd prep for a week travel for a week, shoot for a week, back, you know, and then right. we'd be all in the mode of like uh, we were going one after the other because it's good to get a momentum and keep your crew and all that stuff. And then there was times like when the nuke sub broke uh, where we were all slated. We were really on a rhythm. We were like, you know, we went to Costa Rica. We went to Puerto Rico. We went to Stennis, Mississippi. And, you know, we were, we had a rhythm with the crew and everything was, was going great. Yeah. And, uh, then all of a sudden the nuke sub broke and it's like, okay, guys, we got eight weeks off. And I was like, oh, okay. Hey, kids, Lydia, we're going to Washington, D.C. for summer vacation. Yeah. So we, uh, we grabbed Kira, Miles, and my wife, Lydia, and we headed to uh, Washington, D.C., Lancaster, and Gettysburg to... And, and saw my parents. So we went back east and enjoyed that time. But it was a very kind of, you know, out-of-the-box filming, not only in schedule, but also the capture device that we were using. And out of that, I remember when I started on this, you know, everyone I asked, they said that this was going to be impossible. There was yeah. no way a Canon 5D could hold up on a 60-foot screen. 
And I knew at that point that I was going the right direction when everyone told me it was impossible. So what did that do to your schedule in terms of, of being to take uh, any other work, considering that you were sort of tethered to, to this job? Were you doing a lot of commercials? Well, yeah, I, could, I was able to take a ton of commercials because Bandito needed to do commercials to pay for the movie. So we were constantly flying all over the place. We were in Dubai. We were in, uh, you know, up in Washington uh, shooting Navy Diver. We were down in San Diego doing Navy Swimmer. We were, we were all over the place. I did probably 20, 20 to 30 commercials within the movie uh, while we were, you know, in production. Yeah. If you were shooting Active Valor today, would you still go with the 5D or, or would it be something like the C300? No, it wouldn't be the C three hundred. I would go. I would go probably a a little a little bit of both. You know, sh- showcasing the the whole uh, Canon platform as well as you know. I'd probably shoot a lot of this the um, the dialogue scenes and everything with the bad guys. You know, we shot film. Yeah. Uh, I would shoot probably Aria Alexa mm-hmm. and use that as my 120 frame camera as well and then shoot, you know, 5D Mark II, a little C300 for night exteriors uh, when I needed, you know, low light capabilities. I mean, the 1DX looks pretty promising as well. So I, I think, uh, you know, the, the future is very bright. Uh, in the HD kind of DSLR world. I think they're just getting warmed up. So what was shot on film uh, in Active Valor? Uh, was, it, was it some of the aerial stuff? No, all the aerials were F950 uh, with the Cineflex uh, housing. Uh, the, everything that was with the bad guys was film. Uh, the, the Navy SEALs with their family was film shooting the shit, uh, get ready, deploy, getting briefed was film. And why was that? What's that? Why, why was that shot film? Well, because what we wanted to do is, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to jump out of a plane without, of a, without a backup parachute. Right. I would jump out of a plane without a parachute, but not the backup. <laughs> sure. So I, I wanted to... You know, this this technology was so untested. We were completely tip of the spear on this thing. And uh, so I felt, let's design a landscape for a visual landscape for the film that I could kind of get my head around. And that was when the bad guys were doing what they do, when the Navy SEALs were hanging out there with their families, shooting the shit, getting briefed, that was film. The minute they went into operational mode, that was Canon 5D. And everything, every wide shot, every close-up, you know, everything, except for a couple slow-mo shots that were done, you know, on film. But uh, when they were in operational mode, it was, it was Call of Duty, Canon 5D, immersive, visceral, you know, action photography. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about, the, there is one really powerful uh, dialogue scene. It's the, the interrogation scene. Uh, that happens about midway through the film, uh, and and that was shot on the on the 5D, right? That that, that goes kind of in and out of focus a bit. Um, there's a little there's a little bit of like kind of hunting for focus, which I, I think kind of adds to the the suspense of that. W- was that uh, how that was um, initially conceived? Yes, basically my whole idea on that, and that was day one of shooting. Uh, so that was with a flat picture style that sucked. That was in auto mode where I was tricking the camera yeah, and that was at a T two and a half because what I wanted to do was I wanted to uh, feel like Christo's world was closing in and that every time he looked at the, you know, interrogator, he was getting more and more out of focus and, and uh, tighter and tighter and he couldn't grab focus. He couldn't really understand what he was talking about. He's just, oh my God, my, he's caught me. My world is crumbling. My, my empire, my gun smuggling, my drugs, everything. And, you know, 
I wanted that to be really shallow depth of field, even much more like he's more in focus than than the interrogator because I wanted the interrogator to be really shallow and and uh, and with his movements and everything feel like you know Christo was having a difficulty really kind of you know feeling this world out and just like he was taken out at the knees. So that was the original approach. Now, hindsight being 2020, I probably would have gone a little less shallow, probably a 28 to maybe a 28 and a half. Uh, so, you know, I could have given my focus pullers a, a fighting chance. But, you know, overall, I feel it, it did add to the intensity of that scene because they were two guys sitting in a chair. And I, we've all seen that before, and I kind of wanted to give it a little more, let's say, tension. Right. I mean, the whole scene works really well in a sense that um, we're, we're so used to these scenes being done a certain way. And there are these little differences uh, in this scene that really make it stand out, like the way that it's shot or uh, how ingratiating the, um, the interrogator is to his subject. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that doing uh, Act of Valor was a bit like uh, shooting 35 commercials. Um, what are the kind of, of differences you've found both creatively and logistically between working in, in feature films and commercials? Well, I'd say more than anything is, you know, on a feature you have two hours to tell a story and a commercial you have 30 seconds. So the commercial, it's all about these you know, if you can hold the action and be be great for two seconds, uh, where in a feature, you know, you need to hold people for ten to fifteen, and and the shot can really play out and it can can breathe. And I find that with commercials, it's a whole different animal where the breathing process isn't so much because you have to tell so much in such a short amount of time. Where on a feature, you can really feel the character's soul and, and experience the lighting and, and uh, have that lighting make an impact and have the camera and the composition make a, uh, an impact that's more subtle over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. What about in terms of, of, uh, of a schedule? I mean, it, it seems like when you're doing a commercial, you have a little bit more time uh, to, you know, you're, you're doing like, a, let's say, a 30-second spot and every shot kind of needs to look perfect. Um, when, when you're doing a film, it, it seems like you have a little bit more leeway uh, where, you know, it's, it's a little bit more, you know, it's more about the story and you're not going to spend as much time on every shot. It, is, is that accurate? Yeah, that's it's absolutely accurate. Uh, you know, I find that commercials with the ad agency and the client all in there and they want their, 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 uh, their product to look the best and everything that we're doing, each shot delivered on the board exactly the way they wanted it and and uh, there's a lot of lot of chiefs. Uh, I, that that process is much more time consuming and and uh, and and specific on a movie. I feel it's it's a very organic experience, and uh, and that you do you don't hyper focus on a specific shot. You kind of go with the actors and and uh, and the story, and and they they take you on the journey. You're a director for the production company, the Bandito Brothers, which produced the uh, the film Act of Valor, and you've been working with them a lot. What's it like for you to work with them as a director? The director cameraman is mainly the spots that I'm getting, and which are much more photography based and beautiful pictures, and and uh, it's it's nice to get. Uh, the Marines one I did was kind of humanizing the warrior and I was really loving, uh, where I went with that whole spot. But, you know, I, I like, I like shooting much more than I do directing. So I kind of really want to make that my focus. Uh -huh. Can you talk a bit about the, uh, the really amazing, uh, Prudential, uh, bring your challenges spot, uh, how that came about and, and what, what that, what you had to do in order to make that? Yeah, that was a, an incredible experience. Uh, the director, Ringan Ledwidge, uh, gave me a call, and and uh, he was told by uh, this smuggler producer that if you were going to tackle 
this and problem. Smugglers, the, uh, the, the production company. Yeah, the production company. If you're going to tackle this, uh, this spot and do it the way that Prudential wants to do it, uh, you have to hire Shane Hurlbut. <laughs> yeah. So he called me up and we kind of uh, went through all the different uh, locations and what he wanted to do and where he wanted to put the camera and we kind of talked about what I really responded to and I said, you know, we can we can make this, you know, documenting one sunrise from the New Jersey shore all the way to the Pacific Ocean. We can do that as these vistas and everything, but what if we make this really personal? And and that was really his idea from the get-go. He's like, that's exactly what I want. And I wanna I wanna be over the shoulder of the bus driver. I wanna be with the Oklahoma fa farmer. I wanna I wanna be driving over the Brooklyn Bridge. I wanna be in a house with uh, a dad rocking his baby. And I'm like, now that you know, is powerful because it's, there's an intimacy to that. Yeah. And so when we, we started out on this journey, uh, my God, I, we must've had seven, 16 hour, um, conference calls with every A unit and B unit all the way across the country. And I sent out these camera protocols lists mm -hmm. that told them exactly what to do to every 5d that they had. Uh, to how to set it up the way that I like to shoot it. Uh, lo loaded in all of my specific picture styles so we could react on the day to what Mother Nature threw us. Mm -hmm. And uh, just a protocol of how to deal with exposures. Now, that list went out to every person. I physically got on the phone with every person and talked them through composition, style, all that stuff. Uh, Ringen uh, and I selected all the cinematographers and videographers and still photographers and indie filmmakers. Yeah. There were 125 of them that we uh, that we selected across the country, and uh, I mean it was crazy uh, when Thursday happened and I'm in a control room in Soho and I'm looking at six 60-inch plasmas and you know. <laughs> They're all being fed via the Teradec uh, cube, and they had just had a breakthrough in regards to being able to stream 5D footage with the Teradec cube, and because it normally wouldn't do it because the down converting kicked the uh, Teradec cube handshake out. Mm -hmm. So once they uh, had had kind of threaded that needle, it, it made it all possible. And I mean, the, the morning was like this. Okay, New Jersey Shore. It looks like the sun's moving, you know, uh, rising <laughs> up to your right. I need you to pan right. Okay, the wide shot. I talked about reeds in the foreground. Where are the reeds? Move the camera over to the left. All right, Pittsburgh. Uh, remember, we talked about a 35 mil pushed in the desk, and it's going to come up right over that building. All right, Ohio River Valley. Where are the buses? We talked about school buses. <laughs> and <laughs> it was that all for four hours straight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did that idea come about to have, uh, have that many people um, shooting at the same time? I mean, that's kind of an amazing uh, thing to do that. Yeah, the story behind the commercial is more powerful than the commercial itself. Uh, that was the ad agency. They've uh, done this before where the story behind it is more powerful. And they, you know, they had seven or eight BTS crews, you know, rolling around with all the shooters and taking it all in and, uh, you know, kind of put that all together. Let's talk about money a little bit. Uh, for commercial directors, uh, they tend to get paid uh, based on their shoot days. Uh, say uh, maybe an average might be at ten to 15000 a day, uh, a shoot day. How does that work for uh, for DPs on commercials? Typically, are are they paid based on shoot days as well? Yeah, you're you're paid on your shoot days. You know, prep days, sometimes travel, sometimes only half day travels. Uh, you know, the the range is anywhere from two thousand to to six or seven thousand dollars a day. Mm -hmm. 
And you keep a blog at, at Hurlbut Visuals uh, in which you really uh, you really kind of demystify your process, and you 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 also participate in a lot of filmmaking boot camps, and have, have generally been really open about what you do. Um, I think as opposed to to the majority of of DPs, what I mean, you're you're a really successful guy. What what drives you to to do that to share your your techniques? Well, I think back to to when I started out and. Uh, you know, Kevin Kerslake and Joseph Yako and Daniel Pearl were great mentors to me, and they gave me uh, a, a wonderful springboard to become a director of photography. And, you know, they weren't letting me into all their secrets, but I was really experiencing it as a gaffer and as a key grip how they did things and how they lit and how they exposed. And I, I just think with this digital revolution, there's so many people that just want to know and I had a very fortunate group of mentors that really gave back to me and I think uh, I think I should be doing the same and I'm doing it on a much broader scale uh, they were influencing you know those three guys were influencing one person I think you know with the blog and the success of Hurlbut Visuals and, and where we're going we're influencing you know, thousands. And uh, the the days of holding stuff close to the chest are, are done. That era is over. There's nothing secret. There's nothing that's been done, be that hasn't been done before. Mm -hmm. It's how you can take what I say and take that and make it your own. And that's what any good filmmaker and any good cinematographer does. Uh, I, you know, reading the masters and and uh, talking about how they light and their aesthetics of lighting and what motivates them. You know, I, I grab from all the masters and kind of shape and form that to be my own. Can you talk a bit about the uh, Pirelli uh, spot that you did, which, um, which, as I understand it, was shot in, in seven states over the course of, of five days? Yeah, I, yeah. That, that basically was, you know, the Bandito production module in full swing, mm -hmm. where it's like a six or eight man platoon that literally would fly in a plane and land and be able to shoot uh, and then fly and land and be able to shoot sunset. And, uh, you know, we used a, uh, a slider that Mouse McCoy and his uh, really cool team of uh, guys at uh, Shelley Ward uh, camera cars uh, they developed this sliding rig that was able to slide underneath the the uh, the camera. I mean, under the car, and it was really you know that was Mouse uh, is was really his idea. He wanted that camera to be able to move. It wanted to have a soul. It just didn't want to be rigged, and that's very much what um, Mouse does. Is is what I call liquid action. Mm -hmm. Uh, he really is able to make action, uh, you know, live and breathe, uh, like instead of just rigging it and, and having it very static. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of that whole approach. And we just went to these beautiful places and shot at the right place in the right time. And, and Cantina, which is Bandito's uh, visual effects arm, did all the post process on it, you know, creating that 16 millimeter, you know, ectochromy feel of driving along the Pacific Ocean and and all the different uh, film grains and right. textures. So that was shot on the 5D as well. Yes. Uh -huh. How do you feel about shooting uh, raw at all? Are you, are you at all interested in in shooting with a red or or anything like that? Uh no, no. The red's color space and. And its workflow and everything is is uh, crippling, mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, re really yeah. doesn't excite me in any way. Uh, I'm I'm much more of a, you know, an Arri Alexa. Uh, I love the look and feel. I think that's one of the most filmic captures that's out there, as well as the Canon uh, portfolio. Sure. Do you ever see a benefit though to uh, to to being able to shoot raw and having to getting kind of to punch in on certain things, or or is is that is that or do you do you feel like you're just you're you're kind of plant you're shooting what you're shooting and, and there's no need for that? Yeah, you're shooting what you're shooting. Right. Now the the punch in thing is is very minimal, 
and uh, you know, I, I we use the punch in on film, which has a lot more resolution than than uh, the red. Sure. And uh, you can't go more than you know ten, fifteen percent. So why does everyone think they can go thirty five to forty on a three K capture camera? Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's uh, so I think that pushing in and and tilting up tilting down panning left panning right that kind of stuff a little like five percent push in to stabilize shots that's all good but to uh really you know crack in there to take a shot that was a medium shot and now make it a close-up you're just opening a can of whoop ass sure so it seems like you're really innovating in terms of of kind of uh the way we uh we see first person povs and and, and just certain perspectives. I mean, even in, in you, you did a short film uh, for Canon uh, called the uh, I think it's called the Last Three Minutes. Yeah. And that is ju- is just full of all kinds of uh, I mean, just interesting kind of perspectives that you don't typically see. Uh, what? How did that that notion come about for you? Is that something you've always been interested in? Kind of putting the audience in a in a certain place. Well, that was kind of uh, you know I. I showed the director, Po Chan, the camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, we need to make a short film to showcase the power of the Canon platform. And one day later, she came to me with the last three minutes. She wrote the film in 24 hours. And every aspect of that uh, film really showcases the power of the Canon camera. Not only is it immersive, but it also is a beautiful drama and it takes you on an emotional journey. And it, it's a great storytelling. And, you know, we can do all these little, you know, cologne commercials and, and uh, all these things on short films, but if there's not any emotion and there's not any connection to the, the characters, it's not good storytelling, then who hell cares? You know, and that's where we really, uh, I think Poe just knocked it out with that. And she knocked it out in a way that uh, really, you know, uh, that took you on a wonderful journey that showcased the power of that camera system as, as immersive and emotional all at the same time, which was wonderful. Do you think that these uh, these tools, the the 5D and and all the the stuff kind of coming out, has that sort of reinvigorated you? I mean, you used to shoot purely film uh, before all that. Is is that sort of giving you kind of a like an like an extra shot in the arm? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's uh, it's taken my you know creativity and kind of expanded it. Uh, you know, let's say tenfold. Because you're not in the mass moving business anymore, you're 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 able to be very lightweight. You're able to travel with a camera package in your overhead bin space, land in Cambodia, walk through customs. Nobody even knows you have a camera package. Show up at a Vietnamese market and film an action sequence and have nobody even know you're there. And you got fifteen thousand extras at your disposal. You know that's exciting, and uh, you know moving the camera and being very intimate and, and and pushing it and the physicality of the camera and where you can place it uh, is exciting. So it's really it's really expanded my creativity, and it's I, there's nothing that I would you know I I think it's also helped me just as a filmmaker in general because. Uh, it's not that I'm just a DSLR shooter. If I I've shot 17 movies and one of them was on a DSLR. Right. So I'm a film shooter. I came up through 35 millimeter film, and that is the ulti- you know the ultimate capture medium. And out of that, it's like you start there, and then where does your story take you? What tool is going to be the best uh, way to tell that story? What lens? is going to tell that story the best. Uh, and that's the way I look at it. I read a script and I immediately say, this should be this tool, this should be this lens to tell this part of the story, if it's period, if it's stark, urban, 
you know, whatever uh, the the story is 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 telling me, I kind of react and choose my uh, arrows. Thank you so much for your time, Shane. I really appreciate it. Oh, you got it, Ron. Thank you. And that was the wonderfully engaging Shane Hurlbut. You can find him at hurlbutvisuals.com. You've been listening to this podcast on swayproductions.com and on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter at swayprod. If you have any questions, comments, guest suggestions, please email me at ron at swayproductions.com. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a comment or a rating on iTunes. It helps raise our profile. And if you don't like the show, you don't have to worry about leaving any comment at all. It's, uh, it works out that way. Thank you for listening, emailing, tweeting, and so on. This is Ron Small saying goodbye. <laughs>